The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. And now for something completely different. Hey, I was, I'm a Hall of Famer. I'm in three Halls of Fame. For the young fans, they don't give a damn. They just give a damn about themselves and what they're hearing now. And I got no problem with those rules. I know the rules going in. I'm happy to play the game that way. And when Ivan came off with that uh, knee drop from the top rope and he bent me, I thought that something happened. I couldn't hear a thing. You could have heard the pin drop in that arena. It touched me so deeply that when I went in the dressing room, I really felt depressed. I'll tell you that, I'll tell you right to his face. If it's Hogan and I, if he wanted to get in a real street fight with me, trust me, he would lose, and he knew it. You know, that's the other thing. They give you the belt, and they're like, okay, you're in charge of me. I was like, what? When you mentioned a guy like Harley Race, that kind of legendary status, it's obvious why people would get upset. Or as I'm concerned, Roddy Piper was not a wrestler. He wasn't even a good worker. If he had to go out and work his way to the top and not have good friends like Jim Barnett. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying he's not a good guy. He's just not a tough guy. Bro, I swear to you, I don't have an ego. Like, I don't give a crap. I, that stuff is not important to me. People don't know me. They have no idea of who I am. They know of me as being a fictional character that they saw on TV. People didn't understand that, you know, the guy they saw in the ring that happened to be using his real name and happened to actually be the president of the company, they really believed that that guy that they loved to hate was actually a pretty decent guy. And I think many people have the perception that I really was that character. Hello and welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. I'm your host, JP John Paz. With me today, a very special guest. He is an author and a wrestling historian. He is Mr. Ian Douglas. Ian, welcome to the two-man power trip. How are you doing? John, I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Great to have you. What's going on in your world? What have you been up to? Oh, man. Uh, trying to stay in shape while we're still relatively quarantined down here in Durham, North Carolina, and continuing to do my day job and still writing about two articles a day for Mel Magazine, for which I'm a contributing writer. Oh, nice. Okay. So you're working for Mel and you're working for another, um, right? You're working for a couple of um, publications? Oh, uh, I, I'm also, I also occasionally contribute content to Splice Today, but my okay. day job, I'm the chief communications officer for XL Plus International. It's a um, plasma gasification company located in Houston, Texas. Nice. Oh, wow. Completely separate and different than wrestling. Completely oh, different. Yeah. Totally different. Has has absolutely nothing to do with it. This is The books are a hobby. Uh, all the writing is a hobby, but... Fortunately, the Mel stuff pays fairly well on this, as, as far as sidekicks go. Nice. So with that being a hobby, obviously you have to be a wrestling fan first to be interested in writing the books. When did you kind of just become a fan and like, where did you grow up? Because I always think like wherever somebody grew up, it could be why they're a wrestling fan of maybe of that certain era or of those certain guys. Uh, I grew up in the Metro Detroit area and the, the first time I ever saw any wrestling of any kind, it intrigued me. My parents were vehemently against me, vehemently opposed to me becoming a wrestling fan. But um, 1986, 1987, especially when WrestleMania three occurred just around the corner from where we lived, that cemented 
me as a wrestling fan, and I have remained such for my entire life. Nice. Why were they so much against the business? What's going on there? Um, so much against the business. Nothing to do with the business of wrestling per se. Just the fact that when you're uh, when your six-year-old son is watching Randy Savage matches and then laying out his stuffed animal Lorax on the bed and springing from one bed to the next, dropping elbows on it, uh, it it I can it I could understandably turn a parent off to wrestling in short order. So they uh, they banned wrestling in the house for several years, and that did absolutely nothing to prevent me from sneaking off and watching it every Saturday and Sunday. Nice, as you should, as you should. But yeah, I guess that, that kind of happens when you're watching wrestling. You almost got to imitate the guys. You got to, you know, you got to really get into it. It's a rite of passage. Every, yeah. every every little kid has to replicate what he sees in a wrestling match. That's right. I mean, I remember I was a little kid. I was uh, doing every pose Hulk ever did. I was a huge Hulkamaniac. So, you, and and every move too. So, you mean you got to get into it. Well, dropping the elbows from bed to bed was probably a lot safer than dropping the leg from bed <laughs> to bed. So, yes, in that respect, I'm happy I was a Savage fan instead. Yes. So, as you're kind of becoming a big fan, was Savage your favorite, or you had some other guys? Savage was my guy, 100. percent I mean, I'm I'm sure there were several others I liked. I mean, from the get go, from the get go, I was a Killer Bees fan. I also liked Steamboat, but but Randy Savage was was the number. I also liked uh, Paul Orndorff, but but Randy Savage was the number one guy without a doubt. What was it about Savage that drew him to you so much? Oh man, just the just the aura. Um, he he was very he was very intriguing to watch. Just constant motion, and maybe it had something to do with the fact that that I was, I was more introverted, but felt that, and felt that I always achieved on the level of, of some of the other guys who were bigger and stronger and maybe didn't get um, quite as much attention as I felt I deserved when, when I was a kid. This is, uh, I almost feel like you're putting me on the couch right now. Um, yeah. As, yeah. As far as the psych session goes. Yeah. But um, when it came to Savage, I always saw he was, you know, even as a kid, um, you could see he was undersized. You could see he was going against guys who was larger than that, that were larger than he was, and you could see that he was having success. And so, if he's going against George Steele or he's going against Hulk Hogan, and he has to put a, a, he has to stick a thumb in the eye, or he has to take the tape off of his fingers and wrap it around a guy's throat, and I'd shrug and say, "Well, yeah, sure, the guy outweighs him by." 60 70 pounds what's he supposed to do sure i'd do the same thing yeah. if i was in issues so yeah even 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 heel savage i was behind him 100 percent. with macho man you almost never noticed i mean obviously you, you could tell he's smaller but he was so larger than life and such a great personality and such a great character and such a great gimmick mm-hmm. you never even really thought of him as smaller even though obviously he's a lot smaller than hogan but it's funny he always kind of kept them me anyway kept them neck and neck even though he was a lot smaller, I would just, you know, he's, he's so magnanimous. You just love, you know, Macho Man. You never think of him as a small guy, even though he technically was for that era. Yeah. And he also, at, at least, because you know, again, when you're six, seven, eight years old, you don't, 
you don't necessarily know why you like a guy. You just know that you do. And the fact that that he was in, he always seemed to be in constant motion, you know, as opposed to watching some of the other heels who, you know, they would stall and they would slow a match down and look like they were trying to wear the baby face down. Even when Savage, during the slower segments of his matches when he was a heel, um, you couldn't take your eyes off of him. He was still in constant movement, always doing something that was drawing attention and entertaining. The thing is, which is funny now, we know years later, it's like, oh, he scripted a lot of his matches. But the thing was, which is different than the guys today that script the matches, they completely ignore the crowd. He would never ignore the crowd. He always played to the crowd and, and did things. So, yeah, he would script the match. But it, it's completely different than the mindset of today when they hear, oh, Savage script the match, so we can script the match. He, he was paying attention to the crowd and adjusting things on the fly, you know, depending on, on where the crowd was going. These guys today are, you know, not doing that at all. They're just focus strictly on doing the next spot yes um yeah i think that's one of the things when i talk to and i'm, I'm sure we're going to get into the into the books oh, yeah. at some point but just talking with with bugsy talking with brian blair um it's just a it's a different mind it seems to be anyway a different mindset from what the guys have today that they weren't going out. Certainly they wanted to be entertaining and certainly they knew what they were trying to accomplish and they knew what their finish was, but they were all about listening to the crowd. They were all about eliciting the right reaction at the right time and seeing what the crowd was interested in on that particular day and time. And so it wasn't about getting all of your stuff in. It was about making sure that the fans were entertained and happy and that whatever your deal was with the guy in the ring, as far as the booking trajectory of the organization was concerned, that you got your match over in the process of entertaining the crowd. And so that, that's a whole lot different from going in and saying, Let's de let's design a five star plus match on paper and make sure we get all the stuff in. Well, what what if the crowd isn't feeling it on that night? Well, right. it, it doesn't matter. We still have to get all this stuff in. They'll like it as long as we get everything in, as opposed to, you know, let's let's listen to them and test the waters and see what they actually like as we go. And Savage was a master of controlling the crowd. It's like he knew the reaction he could get because he was so in tune with the fans. So it's like, okay, I know I'm going to get booed here, but you know, or I'm going to maybe adjust something on the fly. But I know the reaction. I well, I think I'm going to get the reaction. But he was such a master. It's like he knew he knew the reactions he was going to get. A lot of the guys today don't necessarily know or have that feel. Yeah, you'd see Savage. He'd go out. He'd. He'd, act, he'd take a fake swipe at a fan. He'd act like he was going to punch a fan in the face. He'd spit on somebody. He'd take a sign and tear it. He'd rip up a Hogan foam finger. He'd, he'd, do, he'd do whatever he had to do. He'd, he'd stall as long as he had to, but a savage stall wasn't just about hanging out outside the ring and doing nothing. It was about getting the fans all riled up and incensed. He was, he was a master of it. A little bit different than Zabisco stall. Zabisco stall was a little, <laughs> a little, little bit more. Uh, I love Larry. A little, maybe a little bit more boring. Uh, Arn yeah. Anderson would say he was the uh, 
uh, what did Orrin say? Oh, uh, uh, cigar store Indian is what he used to call Zabisco because he would be stalling, but he would just be there and he's like, do something, Larry. Right. You know, Savage was definitely different. He was, you know, inciting, uh, you know, mini riots and stuff for sure. Oh, absolutely. Constant motion. So you mentioned the killer bees. You mentioned obviously Brian Blair. Mm-hmm. Truth be told, the Brian Blair book. How did that thing all get started and kind of get wrapped? Like, how did you get in with B. Brian Blair? Yes, awesome. There we go. Uh, how did I get started with Brian Blair? Well, the first time the first time I spoke with Brian was at the tail end of working on Bugsy McGraw's book when we were talking about people who might be interested in doing the forward and the afterward to the book. And uh, Rocky Johnson uh, very kindly agreed to contribute the forward to the book. Uh, that was a wonderful phone call with him that fortunately I recorded and I can still listen to uh, because it wasn't, it was probably five or six months after that conversation when he unfortunately passed away. So I'm oh, wow. very thankful I had the opportunity to speak with him. And then Brian, um, Bugsy loves Brian and said, I think Brian might be interested in doing the afterword to the book. I contacted Brian and Brian said, absolutely. I'm going to take my time and write something up and send it to you. Uh, We had a very brief, we had a wonderful brief conversation on the phone and he sent it in. And that was that. Uh, I didn't necessarily think that I was ever going to speak with Brian again, but it you know, as circumstances prevailed, uh, I was contacted by Scott Stevens, who was Brian's original co-author. And Scott had a lot of stuff going on and he was looking to unload Brian's book project to focus on some other things that he had going. And uh, if if I recall correctly, he contacted Kenny... Bevan, a.k.a. Kenny Casanova, who has co-authored the books of a ton of guys. Um, Kamala, Brutus Beefcake, Sabu, Vader. uh, Those are the, Tito, Tito Santana also. um, Those are the ones that come to mind. I'm just incredible recently. Like there are, there are plenty that he's been involved in. And um, Scott, Scott said to Kenny, I know that you, uh, help wrestlers with their books. Would you be interested in this? And at the time, I think Kenny had three different books in progress and said, I don't have any time for this whatsoever, but Ian might. So I'll check with him. And uh, I got on the phone with Scott and then I got on the phone with Brian and the, the transfer was made and I took over and Brian and I started pretty much from scratch working on his book. With B. Brian Blair, you know, you said you were a fan of The Killer Beast. Do you have to be a fan of the guy to be the author or not necessarily? Absolutely not. Uh, in, in, order to be, in order to be an effective co-author, co-author for these guys, really, you just need to be, really, you just need to be thorough. And it helps to have an understanding of what a wrestling fan wants to know about these guys' careers, uh, what a wrestling fan would want to know about each individual territory that a wrestler was in. And 
honestly, if you know too much about a wrestler's career, it may be a disadvantage because you may presume that um, most fans already know about certain facets of someone's career and therefore you don't explore those enough. So if anything, it could be helpful to be somewhat ignorant of at least certain certain facets of a wrestler's career if you're going to be effective as their co-author. So when you are doing B. Brian Blair's, obviously somebody else started, do you take their work and then make it your own? Like, how do, Or do you kind of go back and say, okay, we got to go back and start this whole process all over again? Um, in, in this particular case, uh, we went back and started from scratch. Oh, wow. And I'm... Um, I don't, I don't say this to be, I don't say this to be critical of Scott. Um, looking at some of the stuff he did, it seemed like some of the passages were, were a little too accelerated that he was trying to work through some things very quickly, um, that, you know, you, you, you can't just speed your way through some element, through some aspects of somebody's career. And he in it seems that he'd made up in his mind and by he i mean um by he i mean scott uh it seems like he'd made up that he was going to follow um mick foley's example that um you you start off with the the pinnacle moment of a person's career wrestling career in the initial stages of the book and then you back up to the beginning and then you work your way forward to that moment and and when i started working with hornswoggle uh dylan postel on his book he had the same initial idea that okay i'd like to you know, i'd like to start at the point where i lose to was his name um el torito the yeah yes. yeah like let's Let's start at that point, and um, we we can get to that later if we need to. But but in Brian's case, when it, it was clear, he told Scott, "Okay, the most um, the the point of my career that most people are going to recognize as being a major achievement was my participation in WrestleMania three. And I I remember looking at that, and it's like Brian had. Brian was still wrestling as of three years ago. Right. Um, Brian actually did some relatively high profile stuff for some other promotions like the UWF, for instance, and multiple tours of New Japan even after he left the WWF in late 88. You can't end his book in... 1987. You, yeah. you absolutely can't do that. So that was that was one of the reasons why we why we had to start from scratch and just and see how long it took to properly tell Brian's story. Um, in and in that case, the core section of the book was I think 400 and. 430 or some odd pages and then went up to uh 455 with the bonus materials that we added 
with him, obviously, so many people know Killer Bees. And obviously, truth be told, kind of play off the, the Killer Bees. You were talking before, you loved them. Mm-hmm. I, when I interviewed Brian, I was talking about the action figures. Everybody remembers the Killer Bee, LJN action figures. Was that kind of his high point, like to you? Like, oh, WWF Killer Bees, or not necessarily the most popular high point. It doesn't necessarily have to be his, you know, crowning achievement. I think he would consider John. This is this is such an interesting case, um, and I'm actually going to go back for a second because the, the fact that you brought this up, this is another reason why you can't start with his WrestleMania three match and then go back to it. Like they they lost that match. It wasn't a great match, right. all things considered. Um, and if you look at, um, if, if you if you read the book, if you've read the book, you know that there was a whole lot that went on during that Killer Bees run to where it wasn't necessarily the proudest um, set of years in his career. He made more money in the ring during that run than he ever made at at any other point. He adored the level of popularity that they achieved. He talks about how great it was to go overseas to Australia and to be recognized by Los Lobos and and rock stars. And he was like, wow, if, if these people are watching the WWF, that's how I know I've really made it. But from an in-ring standpoint, I'm sure he would probably say um, Florida, 1982, Florida, 1984, getting to where, getting to where the top belts in his home state where he grew up and where he watched Jack Briscoe and Dusty Rhodes and those guys on TV every week. That was probably the true highlight of his career. With like the killer bees, if you think about that time period, probably should have won the tag title and talking to him they almost did three times so it's like a lot of start and stop with the killer bees but when you watch them on tv i mean they're having classics with the Hart foundation the Brujos. i mean they the tag team vision at that point is just insanely good and they're just like another cog in the wheel of just awesome teams but brett said it was the greatest tag matches they had a bunch of other people have said it so i mean some pretty great moments from the killer bees despite not winning the tag titles if that means anything it means a great deal to him. Uh, he yeah. loves to have the respect of his peers. I can tell you something that that certainly didn't make it into the book because I'm I'm just a co-author. Nobody cares what I have to say, and rightly so. It's not my story. I'm just there to help frame it in a way that's going to make it mo- the most entertain as, as palatable and entertaining as it can be while still moving the story along. But I remember when Bret Hart gave me a call uh, out of the blue, shocked the heck out of me. Uh, I was just sitting around, got this call from an unknown number. Like, hey, is this Ian? Like, hey, this is Bret Hart. Uh, hey, Bret, how's it going? Yeah, yeah Brian, uh, it's not every day I get a call from Bret Hart, believe me. And he said, yeah, Brian wanted me to uh, do the forward to his book. So I wanted to talk to you about, you know, maybe we could, kick around some ideas and see what might be great to include as the for, in, in that forward. And so we talked for a little bit um, and a few of the things that he offered, um, 
first of all, he said that in his eyes, the Killer Bees definitely should have had a run with the Tag Team Championship. He thought, if anything, the Bulldogs held the belts for too long. Uh, he said that the, the matches with the Killer Bees were the best tag matches that he was ever in, and he loved that time period. He said, as far as he's concerned, they made him look great and saved his job in the WWF. And then as far as um, his run, like that, that post-steroid era run when Brett was on top, when you think about that period um, where Brett's the champion, Sean and, and Bulldog have the IC title that obviously Sean got it the first time from Bulldog and Bulldog disappeared. But then Sean is trading it with Marty. Um, a little before then, you have Jacques Rougeau as the Mountie winning it from winning the IC belt from Brett. These are all of these are all of the junior guys who were in the prominent tag teams in 1987-1988. You have one half of the Rougeau brothers. You have both of the Rockers. You have one member of the Hart Foundation. Um, you have the junior guy, the British Bulldogs. They're all winning belts. And I think, and Brian is something like one or two months older than Brett. Um, he wasn't significantly older than Brett. And I asked Brett, um, how would Brian have fit in with you guys during that period? And he said, oh, are you kidding? He would have fit in perfectly. It would have been amazing if we had him in the locker room and I had a chance to wrestle him then. So, for what it's worth, that's what Brian meant to Brett. Pretty amazing. He's giving you a call and everything. I mean, that, that is great. And, you know, obviously contributing to the book in a great deal. Yeah. And uh, a week after that, I got a call from Hogan. And that was pretty shocking, too. Nice. What did the Hulkster have to say? Obviously, you knew he's known Brian for a very, very long time. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm laughing because... Um, I, I think it speaks a little bit to how the guys are. Uh, Brett called up and I asked him, you know, Brett, I have the recording app on my phone. Do you want me to just cue the recording app and you can say whatever you want and I can transcribe it? And Brett said, no, I'll uh, just give me your email address and I'll work on it over the next few days and I'll email it to you sometime this weekend. Okay, great. Well, Brett gets it to me. I think two days early, um, typed up two pages, fantastic, a, a couple typos. And I said, Brett, this is, and I'm thinking, okay, I'll fix it, no problem. Um, I wrote him, I said, Brett, thank you so much. Brett writes me five minutes later, he's like, oh, I found a typo. Um, here, I'm resending it. Like, okay, thank you. Then I get another <laughs> message. You know what? I found another typo. I'm going to, here it is. I said, okay. Thanks, Brett. Then he sends me another email and says, you know what? I'm Just give me another day or so. I'm going to look this over again, and then I'm going to resend it to you. So that's Brett being just a, a true perfectionist and wanting to take yeah. his time. Hogan calls. And when, when Hogan called, uh, he and I were talking for a little bit, and I said, okay, he, he told me I could call him Terry, which was great. I said, Okay, Terry. So, um, how did you want to do this? I can give you my email. I can give you my email address, and you can uh, write it up, and you can send it to me whenever you want. He was like, actually, I was hoping that 
you know, I could just do it right now with you over the phone. Right. And right. Then, okay. Uh, I'll queue up my, I'll queue up my, uh, recording app and then you can take it away. And he said, oh, he said, okay. I queued it up, told him the floor is yours. And what you read in the afterword of the book is Hulk is every word that Hulk Hogan said to me over the phone. He, he nice. dictated it to me straight up and we threw it right in the back of the book. Each way, right? You don't prefer either way. I mean, I guess both is perfect. What, whatever gets the, and I, I think, honestly, I think both, I think the forward and the afterward accomplished what they were intended to do. Um, Brian spoke primarily about Brian's technical prowess and what Brian meant, um, what his work meant in the ring and what his work meant to, what Brian's work meant to Brett's career. And then at the tail end of the book, and unfortunately you reach the end of the book after Brian has gone through some personal tragedies. Um, and obviously we, when you reach the end of the book, he's the president of the and CEO of the Cauliflower Alley Club, which he of course is to this day. But uh, you reach the tail end of the book. He's gone through the tragedy of losing Paul Orndorff, who was his, who was among his very best friends. He idolized Paul Orndorff. That's a strong word, but uh, Paul Orndorff was his hero when Paul when Orndorff was the tailback at. The University of Tampa and Brian was 13 years old selling sodas in the stands before they trained together years later. And um, so, yeah, meaning uh, losing Orndorff, uh, because from there they were in several territories together. It seemed like they were joined at the hip. And so losing Orndorff recently was absolutely devastating to Brian. And then Shortly thereafter, he also lost his eldest son, uh, Brett, who was murdered. And so at, at the tail end of all of that, when he's going through these personal tragedies and talking about what those, tra what those people meant to his life, um, how he is going to respond in life, uh, within his own life to those tragedies and how people should respond to tragedy in general um, in a way that's most conducive to their ongoing well-being and mental health. It's at that point where you get Hulk Hogan's afterward where he talks about the caliber of man that Brian is and how he is always going out of his way to um, to help people out and how he never turns his back on a friend. And so, again, I think the the Bret Hart lead-in, and, and Steve Kern had a fantastic lead-in, too. That's Brian's very best friend. But the Bret Hart lead-in lead and uh, the Hulk Hogan close, I think they bookended the book perfectly. With, the, like, getting those guys to do it, is that just Brian asking them, and they're like, of course, I'll do it? Or, or like, are you having to kind of play a role in that? Oh, absolutely not. I don't know those guys. They don't know me from Adam. Brian um, is on great terms with so many wrestlers. He he called Brett up and said, hey, if you wouldn't mind, I'm working on my book. It would be great if you could contribute this. Um, and same thing with Hogan. And as, as far as I know, as soon as they got the message from him, he 
he texted my phone number to them and they called me straight away. With the killer bees, just thinking back, if you were one of the bookers, would you have given them tag titles? Oh man. Um, the problem is I, the, the problem is I, I don't have all of the information that the bookers at the time have. Um, in a vacuum, absolutely yes. Um, and if if you read the book, it it becomes readily apparent that one of the reasons that they didn't get the tag titles when they probably should have gotten them had to do with the circumstances under which the Bulldogs lost the belts and Dynamite saying he would only lose them if they lost them to the hearts. Um, what seems to make the most the most logical sense. Um, it seems like things were being set up for the Bulldogs to lose the belts to Volkov and the Iron Sheik. And if you look at the way WrestleMania three was put together with um, the Killer Bees facing Volkov and the Iron Sheik right in the lead up to the main event, um, that seems like that was it was that was being built to be the the coronation period of the Killer Bees. Or they, or they would have had the belts earlier and they would have defended them. When you look at WrestleManias, it's, it's something like every WrestleMania between the first WrestleMania and WrestleMania 19, something like that, the tag titles were defended at every single WrestleMania except WrestleMania 3. And so you have to... You, you have to presume that there was some sort of funny business going on um, behind the scenes for the, for the tag titles not to have been defended on the show. And for the, um, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily need to be the killer bees against the Sheik and Volkov. It could have been the bulldogs against the heart foundation straight up. And they didn't do that, but Again, just looking, just looking at the pattern, that would have been the ideal time for them to get the belts, and and it didn't happen. And my guess is that there were just some machinations going on behind the scenes that prevented it. But in a vacuum, yes, I think the Killer Bees should have been champions at some point. And historically, especially nowadays, it hurts them when the tag team titles are being hot potatoed around to everybody in the company, whether they're even a dedicated tag team performer or not. Um, so in retrospect, it's, it's tragic that they didn't get the titles because they would be remembered a lot more fondly if they had. Yep. And it's funny because that era, everybody's so, so much more important, I guess you could say, if that's even correct grammar. But it's like Honky Tonk holds the IC title for a year. Hogan holds the world belt for four years. Demolition is tag team champs for like a year. I mean, it, the guys held the belts for longer, which means that other teams that are great of that era aren't going to be champion. And other wrestlers aren't going to be champion. But it makes the title much more important. And it's like, oh, well, Jake wasn't world champion. And Mr. Perfect. And you go on, you know, start listening to all these guys. Well, Hogan was champ for four years, so kind of made the belt even more important. And whoever won it was like, wow, I can't believe they're champion. You can literally remember off the top of your head. You're like, well, then Andre beat him. And then they had the tournament. And then it's that. Like, you could literally remember it nowadays. Forget it. I, for, I, I have to, like, 
oh two, I probably forget all of them. They, that's when they just started hot shouting every title. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why. I mean, you asked if they should have had the, you asked if they should have been awarded the belts, and I hedged a little bit. Um, one of the reasons I hedged is just, again, looking at it from a business standpoint. Um, people always look at Hogan's reign. And they'll say something like, oh, Piper should have gotten the belt. Oh, Orndorff should have gotten the belt. Oh, this person should have gotten the reign. And by the time you give everyone, or, or, or Morocco should have gotten a reign. And by the time you plug in everybody who you think should have gotten a reign for a certain amount of time, um, Hogan is no longer Hogan. Um, the company isn't necessarily making the money that the company needed to make where everybody on the roster was making plenty of money because you may have hurt Hogan's drawing ability and killed the goose that was laying the golden eggs. So um, as much as I'd love to go back in time and say, although here's a case where I actually think you could have done it, um, where you go back in time and say, for instance, um, you let Savage, you let Savage get out of WrestleMania five with the championship and let him hold on to it for another six months and let Hogan chase. Like, I have no doubt that that does huge box office. But uh, what Vince McMahon knew was with babyface Hulk Hogan on the top, on top, we make a ton of money. Why would I ever change that? And so then looking at what was going on in the B and C house shows. Um, if you have Hogan on top and then you have um, Doug, if, if, you, well, if you have Hogan on top and you're giving the Intercontinental Championship to, say, Ricky Steamboat, then does it behoove us to package Steamboat with the Heel Heart Foundation and have them headline the B and C shows so that they can draw money? So thinking of it is, as far as a traveling package that that needs to draw as opposed to what needs to draw on television um it it's it's a different way of looking at it with hogan too i always laugh when people say oh probably piper should have won and hogan could have won a back WrestleMania too how much more money you think they could have made i mean hogan was making so much money there's like no there's no proof to say like, oh, if they did this, it would have drew better. You can't really draw better. He was the, like the, the king, the ultimate. So it's almost like, yeah, you could say that, and it might have been a better story. You probably wouldn't have made as much money as Hogan was making. Right. If you if you have Hogan lose the if you have Hogan lose the belt to um, Orndorff, and, I, and I'm going to forget the order of the events, but if you if you have Hogan lose the belt to Orndorff at the big event or whatever the show was in Toronto. Yeah, big event. And, and you have them win, the, win it back in the cage match at Saturday night's main event. Um, you know, that's all well and good, but then you can't promote Hogan versus Andre at WrestleMania three as Andre undefeated for 15 years, which I don't think was true anyway. But yeah. um, you can't. You can't say Hogan has been an uninterrupted world heavyweight championship for this length of time, and no one's seen him, no one's seen him take even a pinfall through some sort of chicanery. So WrestleMania three isn't as big a deal as far as yeah. the main event is concerned. So I 
it's it's I don't I don't like to do those hypothetical retroactive bookings because you may end up you may end up screwing the whole company over just to give your favorite guy a, a yeah. one month reign with the belt. Yeah, it's funny. I was talking to Kevin Sullivan. He was saying that he thinks Piper should have wanted it in WCW. Remember, he wanted it at Starcade, and there was a little bit of like bait and switch where they didn't say it was for the title. So technically, Hogan was still champ. He was saying he wished Piper won. And then he's like, oh man, he goes, maybe Piper should have won it back in WWF. He goes, but then if you look at business, how could you argue with Vince the way he did it? He goes, you weren't making more money than that. So it's almost like, well, that doesn't really make sense. But he should have won in WCW. So it's like, yeah, well, that's true. They probably, you know, could have won it then. Yeah. Um, Brian, one of the special sections um, in in a lot of the stuff um, that didn't necessarily fit into the flow of the book, we included in a supplemental section at the end. So stuff that would have been more more arbitrary, like his feelings on this thing or his feeling of feelings on this that would have interrupted the flow. Um, we just take them one at a time in the supplemental section. And he gave his opinion on, on title reigns, which is interesting that if there, if there was no, if, if they'd known that the business would eventually be exposed and, and also aggregated so that everyone had all of the information of what was going on at every territory at, at every point in time then they would have booked things completely differently. Guys would have been way more selfish. Um, if, if a wrestler had control of the book, he would have booked himself to win, um, win a championship and hold on to it forever because he would have um, improved his Hall of Fame credentials and his, his resume long-term. And that wasn't the way these guys were looking at things back then. They just wanted to draw as much money as possible by obviously keeping the fans entertained and hoping that they would get that repeat business. And, and, and the reason I bring that up is because, as you mentioned, it was all about, it was all about drawing money and you don't necessarily want to I mean, now, for the sake of Roddy Piper's resume, for example, you could say, well, the one gaping hole in his resume is that he wasn't a world heavyweight champion. Like, yeah, but he also made main event WrestleMania money and how many people got that. Would he rather have the world championship or would he rather have had the WrestleMania main event payday? Um, certainly back then, he would have rather had the payday, I'm sure. It is funny to think like, you know, what guys certain opinions are, but really the wrestlers themselves. I mean, it's a lot to do with money and, you know, how much money they made and, and draw in the house. Nowadays with guaranteed money, it's a little bit different. But back then it's like, all right, if we're tag champs, probably make a little bit more money. Or maybe if we're headlining the house show, even if it's a B or C show, we're probably going to make a little bit more money. I mean, a lot of it was predicated on opportunity back then mm -hmm. and not guaranteed money. Right. Exactly. And um you look at you look at Brian in Florida, he's he's main eventing in 82, he's main eventing in 84, and then in the in the WWF on the B and C shows, they are headlining with the Hart Foundation. And these guys, um, and I just mean if you look up and down the WWF roster in 1980, um, pretty much 1985 
through 1989-1990, all of these guys were main eventing in usually multiple territories at, at different points of their careers. And so when, when these guys were all subsumed under the WWF banner, they understood that Hogan is, scor is scorching hot and we need to take advantage of this while we can. But they all respected one another as having been main event talent. And they looked at their roster as being this as being this all-star roster. And even guys like, I mean, I shouldn't say even guys like Dino Bravo. You're getting, you're plucking Dino Bravo right out of Montreal, where he's the guy. You're getting Rick Martel more or less straight out of the AWA, where he was at, where he had a I think a year plus reign as the AWA world heavyweight champion. This was this was a true all-star roster. And now when people look at when people evaluate that roster in retrospect and they look at guys and say, well, that guy, that guy never held a belt in the WWF. Therefore, he was a scrub. That is just horribly unfair. And it's and it's not true because then you'll take that same guy and you can track all of the money that person made in all of these different territories and how they may have headlined everywhere they went. Um, for example, Bugsy McGraw, he was the biggest at one point. He was the biggest draw Vancouver ever had. Um, he went from that to main eventing in San Francisco on the strength of what he'd done in Vancouver. And then the WWF took him and put him in main events in the in Madison Square Garden with Bruno San Martino because, because of all the success he'd had in the West Coast and in Australia. And, you know, unfortunately, there's no footage available, hardly any footage available of Bugsy when he was this gigantic athletic, big bumping heel. And they remember him as a comedic act in places like Memphis or in the later stages of his world-class career and then in Mid-Atlantic. And they say, oh, he, he was just a comedy joke wrestler who was tag teaming with Jimmy Valiant. Like, sure, if you, if you start the clock after somebody has already been wrestling for 14 years and they're not yeah. quite what they were when they were in their 20s. Yeah, you can say that. You just happen to miss all of the all of the best matches from that person's career. I always find that funny when people like, you know, when they see the guy later on in his career, like even like, oh, Bill Watts is just a promoter. No, he headlined MSG with Bruno. It's like people like put people in certain categories, but they don't really look at the whole career. And Bugsy is, is a great one because he was obviously a big star everywhere. And then when you see him later on in your career, when I started seeing him much later on in his career, it's like, oh, I guess he was more of a comedy guy. And then you read, you know, read and look up and become more of a story. You're like, no, not at all. You know, main eventing against Bruno, stuff like that. It's just like, Man, these guys have way more of a lengthy career, and you can't just look at certain aspects of their career. You got to look at the whole thing, which is great. It's why your books are great. Yeah, and you know, unfortunately, there are people who don't want to have, even as ill-informed and misguided as their opinions may be, they don't want to hear the counter arguments because they're very comfortable with the narrative that they've yeah. concocted based on limited information, and they don't want to hear 
that this guy who they shoehorned into this uh, comedy, permanent comedy, comedy undercard position in their minds, they don't want to hear that that guy was once super strong, unbelievably athletic, and was headlining everywhere as a vicious heel. Um, yeah, and it's that's unfortunate. And that book is Brute Power, right? Yes, Bugsy, it is. Bugsy McGraw story? Yeah, I think I have a guess. I do. Nice. Copy right here. Nice. I, I came prepared with props. Nice. Very good. So how many books have you written for wrestlers? Has it been four or is it more than four? Uh, four. The, the, first was, the first was with Dan Severn. The, the Realist second, guy? What was that? Realist guy? Realist Guy in the Room with Dan Severn. I desperately wish I had an opportunity to redo that one. Um, oh, why? Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll get to that in one second. <laughs> um, but yes, um, there you go. Yeah. Yep. Realist yeah. Guy, Dan, Dan Severn's book. And then we have uh, Life Horn is Short, yeah. and so am I, Hornswoggle's book as well. Um, with respect to with respect to Severn's book, um, Unfortunately, when I first got involved with this, you, you always hear people say, um, we don't know what we don't know. And I, I didn't know what I didn't know. I was, I was assisting uh, state, Meyer State Games of Michigan with uh, writing articles and blog entries for them. I was doing my best to incorporate wrestlers into some of the entries. So I interviewed Diamond Dallas Page on yoga. I interviewed Taz on judo. Um, I'm, I think I interviewed, oh, I interviewed Kurt Angle. Kurt Angle is kind of a buddy. Um, I, I, had to, I had to spend time at his house shooting videos for a fitness company that I was involved in. And then I uh, sat on his sat on his stairs case while he was involved in another interview waiting for his agent to drive me back to my hotel and his wife took sympathy on me and and gave me some cupcakes that she baked for easter which was <laughs> which which was nice but i was i was writing for meyer state games of michigan i interviewed severn and i mean he's i mean to the degree that you can be right down the road in michigan and live an hour away he lived right down the road from Right. And so we, we remained in contact. He said he was interested in doing a book. And I said, if you give me, um, a, if you give me a few weeks and we talk for an hour every day, then I'll help you put your book together. That's no trouble at all. Um, so my, re my regrets, as far as that go, the, the first time you do almost anything, uh, you want it you want to do a good job, but you also want it to be over with as quickly as possible so that you can prevent, you can present this finished product and say, okay, here it is. And we, we rushed through it way too quickly. We handed it over to what culture right after they were going through a massive, they were in the midst of a massive shift. I don't know if it was an ownership shift, but I think more than half of the the people involved at what culture were right in the process of leaving. Uh, there was miscommunication. An unedited draft of the book wound up getting published. So there are way too many typos. And the book is just, it's very short. It doesn't do dance career justice. 
And I mean, there are there are other people that I could lay some share of the blame at their feet. But in reality, if I'd said, look, we don't need to, we don't need to rush this out. We can, we can take our time. We can take six months to a year and make sure we're thorough, we're thorough and cover every aspect of your career properly. Um, it would have been a much, it would have been a longer book. There wouldn't have been as many mistakes. And that's one of those cases where I wish I had a do-over, which is why every other book I've been involved in from the time it started to the time of publication, it took it took at least a year. Wow. Okay. So Severin, you maybe learn from your mistakes and uh, move forward. You know, obviously give you some experience on how to handle those situations better for the next books. Yes. Um, you know, unfortunately, I sometimes feel like the quality of Severance book got sacrificed in the process. And I and I do think it's still it's still a good book in as much as his story is fantastic. And what's there, typos aside um, that unfortunately didn't get edited out. What's there is of quality. He just deserved a he deserved a longer book and he deserved a better editing job. He is a great storyteller. I've interviewed him a few times. Fantastic storyteller. Yes. Much more than you would think. It's, you know, sometimes his his UFC fights are a little plodding. You know, very he's very meticulous. He would kind of really ground and pound, but not so much ground and pound. He would almost just like wrestle you. And mm -hmm. then once you made a mistake, then he'd kind of capitalize. He was very plodding with a lot of his fights, but completely different as far as personality and, and like interviews and stuff. He's fantastic. Oh, uh, that was that was a surprise. You know, I, I, I wasn't expecting him to be as, as emotive and animated as he was during yeah. interviews. He was fantastic. And I love, I love his thick Michigan accent too. <laughs> it's funny. It's like, you almost see some of his fights like, Oh, he's probably going to be like a very, like not boring, but like, he's going to be very straightforward. It's going to be very like black and white, but not at all. He's super animated. Oh yeah. And, and he's all over the place. And, and that was a case where, if I didn't, if I didn't keep him reined in and and focused on certain topics, he would he would go all over the place. He's just a very amiable guy, and he and he loves to talk. I, I wish more. I wish more people knew that about him, and I wish more of that portion of his personality got to shine through during his wrestling career. But you know, when you when you bring him in as this sort of authentic true to life killer from the world as MMA you you can cast the guy as this cold merciless unfeeling killer who doesn't emote very much and that seemed to be the direction that the WWE went in with him yeah exactly they uh, I don't know it feels like certain guys they don't know what to do with them Dan Severn, Vader, Steve Williams. I mean, there's a bunch of guys you can name way more than that, but it's just like, wow, they just don't know what to do with certain guys. Yeah, and 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 during that era where they were it, bringing Severn in during the Attitude Era, there were there were plenty of things you could have done with him if you wanted to, um, if you wanted to stress the ultra violent elements of his personality. I mean, just imagine, for instance, if Dan Severn had gone into a place like ECW and been given 
the Taz push, just, just as an example, because in a lot of ways, and I, I adored Taz is still one of my favorites, just in terms of gimmick. But if you, if you think about what Taz's gimmick was and you think about its timing, I have to think that I have to presume that it was influenced at least a little bit by Dan Severance career, given uh, I, I think we I think we worked out that Dan Severn starts winning in the UFC and then Taz goes from Tasmaniac to Taz very soon after that and starts using a judo and wrestling based style where he starts choking people out. Uh, Dan says that he is the guy, I think rightly so. He credits himself as the guy who turned uh, amateur style wrestling into a martial art. And I think you see that exemplified by Taz's gimmick in ECW. And you could have you could have taken Dan and given him the same sort of ruthless killer gimmick and you could have gotten it over. And I think it's a shame that a according to Dan, uh, Vince Russo wanted to take him and put 666 on his forehead as the mark of the beast. And that wasn't, and that wasn't, you know, because he's, he's the beast, Dan Severn. Yeah. So we'll give him the mark of the beast and put him in the, uh, the undertaker's ministry stable. And that would have been a disservice to a guy who was as legitimate of a fighter as the WWE had on their roster at the time. Yeah, or could have had him feud with Shamrock. I mean, they had that one that one match on Raw that was like five minutes, but I mean, man, they could have had a big feud with him. That's money right there. They had a real life feud, but they oh, missed the boat on that one. And also, you know, lest we forget, Severn was the reigning NWA World Heavyweight Champion yep. at the time. Um, he even defended against Owen Hart on some NWA shows. That apparently the WWF lent Owen. Uh, for that purpose. And when I asked Dan, could you have lost the NWA championship to Owen and then won it back? And he said, Oh, absolutely. And I'm sure, um, I, I, I'm sure, I think it was Dennis Carluzzo who was in charge at the time. Um, I think, but whoever was um, controlling the NWA at the time, Dan said, he's sure that they would have been all for it. And he, could have defended the NWA championship in the WWF. They just never got around to having him do it. And, and it's unfortunate because that would have been a lost opportunity. Owen could have gotten a world heavyweight championship reign out of it. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the things, unless you count his brief USWA reign, that's one of the things that was lacking from his resume. Yeah, true. See, it's much different back then, though, to like to say these great wrestlers from the greatest of all times, not world champion. It's just like that's how special the title was. Like, if you got the title, you are, you know, you're golden, you're remembered forever. But they also remember, like, well, I can't believe Owen didn't win it. And, and Jake and Neil, like the guys you were saying before, but it felt much more special that when you were the champion. Now it's like, who the hell cares? Oh, Big E's champion? Who cares? We're not going to remember that next month. And, oh, Kevin Owens won the title. Oh, we're not going to remember that. Like it, It's like, who cares anymore? It's just they killed the Reigns. Thank God uh, Roman Reigns has held, held the title for 500 days trying to build back up the titles. Yeah, it's, it's the devaluing of the championships that has caused, that has retroactively caused any career that has not included 
at least one reign with a world heavyweight championship that's retroactively caused those careers to be devalued as the as the championships are devalued in the present day. And it's it's just a sad corollary. So as we hit the wind down, we head towards the finish. What's next for you as far as wrestling books and wrestling? Are you allowed to say? Are you working on any other projects? What's going on? I am presently working on three different projects that are in various stages, and I am not at liberty to divulge any of them. Um, And uh, one of the reasons, there are two that involve other people that I'm not at liberty to divulge because I have that agreement in place with them. And the third project, uh, that's, that's entirely on me, and I don't want to. I don't want to put that out there just because I don't need people getting in touch with me saying, "Ian, when is this coming out? We need you to be working on this." Because frankly, my schedule is my schedule is so slammed with a full time job plus writing for Mel plus occasionally writing for Splice, and I just finished a, an MBA uh, just a few months ago, and it was crazy having to maintain my workload while uh, while doing school as well. Uh, right now, I'm I'm thankful just to have a couple month break from some of these endeavors. Good point. So, as far as all the the four books, can just go over them again. I know obviously it's Life is Short, so am I. Hornswoggle, Realist Guy in the Room, Dan Severn, Brute Power, Bugsy McGraw, and then Truth Be Told. Right? Yeah, uh, yeah. We have yeah Dan Severn's book, The Realist Guy in the Room. We have a uh, Life is Short and So Am I with Dylan Hornswoggle-Postle and also Ross Owen Williams, the other co-author, who did a phenomenal job with that. Uh, Root Power, the autobiography of Muggsy McGraw, and uh, Truth Be Told with B. Brian Blair, all of which are available on Amazon right now. What other plugs do you have, social media and otherwise? Oh, man, you're going to make me remember these. Okay, I think my Twitter handle is stream glass s-t-r-e-a-m glass g-l-a-s-s um you can also keep up to date with things that i'm working on if i remember to update the site at iandouglas.net so i-a-n-d-o-u-g-l-a-s-s iandouglas.net and uh on instagram i am ian mac douglas uh I-A-N-M-A-C-D-O-U-G-L-A-S-S. Not calling myself a Mac or anything. My family changed its name. Uh, years ago, after arriving from Scotland, uh, changed the name from MacDougall to Douglas. So that's just an illusion. Oh, there we go. Interesting. All right. Nice. Well, Ian, thank you so much for all the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And everybody, check out those awesome books. John, it was a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. This has been a John Paz Power Trip production in conjunction with the two-man power trip of wrestling. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at two-man power trip. You can check us out on Facebook. You can subscribe on YouTube. You can go to patreon.com slash TMPT Empire to become a patron. And also check out the website tmptempire.com and buy a shirt at prowrestlingtees.com. Two-man power trip where the power lies brother.